Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Rachel S. Ferguson, an economic philosopher at Concordia University Chicago and director of the Free Enterprise Center there, and Marcus M. Witcher, an assistant professor of history at Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama. Together they are the authors of the new book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Clearly the title is provocative, and I think for many today, the the most provocative words are black liberation, uh, especially in, in these times, the idea that uh, blacks have been or can be liberated by the market or that they've achieved liberation at all. So what do you mean in the general sense of, of black liberation? Well, and I'm certainly playing with words a little bit there because I know that liberation has, uh, you know, maybe left coding as a word where the term marketplace is perhaps right coding or libertarian coding or something. And so part of it was on purpose, right, to, to show that, kind of bring the anti-tribal nature of the project forward right away. But it's also the fact that when you look around globally, you are seeing real liberation through the marketplace happening all over the world, right? People going from being in a totally economically vulnerable position you know, maybe picking rice or something, right? And and a few generations down, having choices, being able to go, go to college, sending your children to school, having antibiotics, you know? And so we know as classical liberals how liberatory the market can be. And so we wanted to go back and look at the situation of Black Americans and say, hey, wait a second, so much of this oppression that they've experienced is their exclusion from the liberatory effects of the market. And, and of course, today, many Black Americans are really thriving economically, um, doing incredibly well. Uh, and, but of course, we, we maintain concern for people who have, be, have remained shut out in certain ways. You said anti-tribal, which you mentioned in the beginning of the book. Uh, what do you mean by anti-tribal? Well, I think that, um, you know, there's no denying that we're in a kind of toxic or poisonous political moment. Uh, people seem to be in what I call reaction mode. I used to say, I, as I was writing the book, I woke up every day with the same thought, don't react. You know, that was my my, my mantra. Um, and so the idea of, of unbundling the different things that we tend to put together into political platforms, for instance, um, and, and being able to take issues one at a time, because it can be really tough to take a position that doesn't fit with your socio-cultural group uh, and to push back on them a little bit. But one wonderful thing about being a classical liberal all my life is that I've never fit in well with any socio-political group. And so around progressives, I, you know, uh, might think that our uh, national spending is out of control and around conservatives, I might think we need to end the drug war. And so uh, uh, I've never fit in and Marcus has never fit in in that regard. And so uh, bringing that ability to sort of be non-tribal to this very hot topic of race, which is causing a lot of reactionaryism, uh, it seemed to, it, it, I felt like we kind of needed a shot in the arm in that direction. Yeah, one of the key aspects of the book, and one of the things that I think makes it unique, is the fact that um, we say, listen, the left has some really good ideas, the right has some really good ideas, both sides are right on some issues. It's a matter of, matter of parsing, you know, the prescriptions or maybe progressives point out the problems, but the prescriptions are, are bad and are only going to lead to sort of uh, increased poverty that won't actually solve the problems. Maybe conservatives have certain 
truths that we can take to bear as well. And so we try to bring them together to offer, um, you know, readers. Um, it's not just sort of a bash on progressives and a bash on conservatives. We try to try take the best from both of those traditions um, and see it through sort of this classically liberal lens to offer a, if you will, a third way, right, uh, of looking at the issue. And the use of the marketplace is interesting because you address this early on. There are many people, many people in the academy especially, who believe that whatever capitalism is, it's not going to be an engine for racial justice uh, at the minimum. And not only that, uh, slavery itself is part of the dirty history of capitalism and part of the kind of the the Baptiste book in particular I'm thinking of, that slavery and capitalism were, if not dependent on each other, they at least moved hand in hand. So how do you address that claim and why did you think it was important to address that claim? Yeah, I think the the ideas of the new historians of capitalism uh, are becoming more and more popular, obviously immensely through the 1619 Project in the New York Times in particular. And so we wanted immediately, I mean, of course, if we're going to defend a classical liberal perspective at all, we need to show that it has, um, you know, this abolitionist history, right? And the idea that right out of the gate, not only morally, but also economically, people like Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill and others objected to slavery uh, on both grounds. Uh, exploiting other people is not a good way to get rich. Uh, it, it can be a good way for a few people to get rich. I should put it that way. It's sort of like piracy, right? It can be a good way for a few people to get rich, but it's not a good way for a whole economy to get richer and to experience the kind of great enrichment that we see through innovation because you're just taking a group and you're excluding them and all of their great ideas and the possibilities of trading with them. And we think that the new historians of capitalism are very sloppy with the term capitalism. Uh, the term itself is confusing anyway, because you have cronyism, which can sometimes be seen as part and parcel of capitalism or not. And so we don't use the term capitalism, actually. We use the term free markets. Um, and so we did think we had to kind of address that head on. So we do that right at the beginning of the book in chapter two. Yeah, I think that one of my major criticisms um, as a historian is that the ideas, the liberatory ideas that are ingrained within the Declaration of Independence are a product of liberalism, right? They're a product of Enlightenment liberalism and market liberalism as it emerged in the 19th century was amazingly liberal, you know, uh, it provided liberation, right? For many, many, many people, lifted people out of poverty. And we see those ideas that were ingrained within the Declaration of Independence and within the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc., right? Being slowly extended to other groups of people over the course of the 19th century and the 20th century. The great failing was not of market liberalism. The great failing was not extending market liberalism and the protection of just rule of law to all Americans. And so um, I find uh, the new historians of capitalism and their criticism of capitalism, they're really criticizing, they conflate capitalism with markets. Um, but markets have existed since, well, I would argue, uh, as someone who teaches world civ, uh, from the beginning of time, markets are natural, uh, chucking and bartering and whatnot. Capitalism is something unique that emerged right in the late 18th, early 19th century in the Netherlands and uh, Britain. Um, and they don't really, I don't think, delve into that nuance at all. And it's interesting. I, I like your analogy, Rachel, to piracy because there seems to be a weird inability to understand that, yes, some people can get rich. I mean, I was thinking about all these other things that I would consider not capitalism, not markets, like the American Bar Association might enrich a bunch of people uh, at the expense of bad legal 
you know, bad legal, not meeting legal need and, and a bunch of people who are artificially wealthy. And so you do a good job of working through, well, what were the trade-offs and, and what actually, where, where was the slave economy by the war? I mean, I think that's an important thing, like that they were defending slavery as a positive good and they were not growing or adjusting or innovating or doing almost anything because of the oppression of, of the black Americans of the time, correct? Yeah. So, you know, this can be a little confusing because the Southern economy was pretty big, like relatively in the world, right? It was a pretty big economy. Um, planters could be quite wealthy. They, they weren't any wealthier than, than Northern industrialists, but, but they, they could be as wealthy as them. Um, and so what you have to look at is more the, um, the layout of the wealth, right? And so what we see as a good marker of a free market economy is a large middle class, so you may have a few rich people, you may have a few poor people, but you want to have a really big middle class. What you see in the South is no middle class. So you have a few wealthy families and very poor whites and then deeply poor uh, enslaved black people. And, and you see really weird behavior like, um, you know, like a hundred years after people are using the steam engine, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're handing buckets of water down a line, right? Because you can use this slave labor. You have it, so you might as well use it. So it ends up really not driving normal kinds of innovation and investment and infrastructure in such a way that, that when the war is over, then the South is trying desperately to catch up uh, in, in that regard. And Frederick Douglass expresses real surprise at meeting regular white people in the North um, because he thought of people who weren't owners as poor. And then he would meet regular white workers. He'd be like, they're doing pretty good. You know, he was sort of amazed when he got up north at just how well off regular workers were. After the war, it's of course a very, very, we'll get into all the, the difficulties of the Reconstruction South. Uh, but it did seem clear to many people, including uh, the Freedmen's Bureau and people in Washington, to some extent, that what was really needed for the freemen, freedmen was property rights, the ability to contract your labor, the ability to defend yourself from violence, the kind of things that were being systematically denied. Uh, and of course, slavery itself is the systematic denial of the right to contract and the right to own your the products of your labor. Uh, how was the struggle, uh, for just taking uh, one of the beginning chapters, for property rights? Uh, how did that get sort of fought out and, and how did it go for the freedmen overall in the Reconstruction South? Well, I'll start and, and Marcus can follow, but, uh, you know, I, I cannot more highly recommend the book Competition and Coercion by Robert Higgs. Uh, it's, it's sort of beloved in the classical liberal community, but not well known outside of it. Really, really good work. And what he shows is that uh, freedmen desperately wanted farms. There was a real desire for property, uh, for land, a sense of the dignity that would come with ownership. Um, but unfortunately, uh, in many cases, they could not maintain uh, property rights. Of course, they're, they're, they were never compensated for all of the stolen labor. Um, there were there were no 40 acres that that didn't end up coming to fruition. And so uh, what you end up with is share is the sharecropping system. Um, the sharecropping system is not ideal, but uh, because it, freedmen had the ability to move, because they had the threat power of, I can move from this farm to that farm, or I can move from the lower south to the upper south, they were able to bid up their shares. And so you do see actually pretty impressive gains. Um, Black America, the Black American economy triples uh, the, the speed 
that it grows at when, when compared to the white American economy, they're starting from a very low point, right? So that doesn't mean that you're, you're rich by 1900, but it does mean that you've got a little bit of extra income enough to, um, you know, have some things beyond necessity, uh, you know, and maybe uh, be able to take, you know, take a, a vacation every now and then. Um, so a little bit of extra income, and, but it really is a huge, a huge leap forward. And, um, one of the things that Higgs shows, which I think is so powerful, is the way that the white farmers, the planters, tried to collude with one another and even put it in the newspaper. You know, let's all just agree that we're not going to let anybody move from farm to farm because they're bidding, you know, they're bidding us against each other. Right. And they're, they're bidding up their their shares. And of course, like all collusions, like all cartels, uh, they were totally unstable and they couldn't they couldn't make them work. But but you just saw how hard they tried to use that kind of mechanism in order to stop uh, wages from going up. Yeah, and it's really, really incredible that during this time period of Reconstruction, of course, the blowback against sort of radical Reconstruction, right, and trying to empower African Americans by the Freedmen's Bureau, etc., that you see massive, massive literacy gains among Black, uh, among the Black community, among Black Americans, um, and you see, you know, other things that I think sometimes, you know, we sort of forget about is this the extension of contracts, not only in the form of property, but also in the form of marriage contracts, recognition of things like that. And so the dignity of, of those people was also enhanced um, significantly. As Rachel said, you know, sharecropping was not an ideal system. And there are definitely instances where people were exploited and it was it was pretty, pretty bad. But on the whole, I think Higgs is pretty convincing, right, uh, that the freedom to move, um, you know, sort of enabled this massive increase uh, over the course of um, those 30 or 40 years, even in a not ideal system. Seems like a good time to get into Gary Becker and the economics of discrimination, which many libertarians are familiar with the idea that being a racist, let's say, employer of some sort and not wanting to employ someone because of your racism, even though they're qualified for the job, uh, can hurt your business. The basic argument of Gary Becker, but it's also kind of, it seems like something we should be uneasy with. Essentially, we're saying that a person can price their labor lower in order to essentially compensate the the owner, the employer, for their racism because someone says, well, how much is your racism worth to you? And maybe it's worth $4 an hour to a, a racist person in the South or something. That would be a lot at the time. But it's worth something. And so if, you could, if you're allowed to pay them less, then you might be willing to employ someone that you're racist against. Should we feel okay with this argument? I mean, is do we want them to people have to essentially pay their employers for being racist, uh, or should we just more demand that no one be racist at all and not be allowed to charge anyone less whatsoever? Yeah, that's a really actually a nice way of of objecting <laughs> to, to to the view of Becker. I think that uh, we need to take a couple things into account. One actually employers, and we see this in the work of Paul Moreno on blacks and unions, employers are actually pretty indifferent to people's race. Um, they're happy to hire whoever's the best deal because that's the incentive structure that they're under. But they're often dealing with the racism of their workers as well as their customers. So they're dealing with employees, for instance, who are saying, I will go on strike if you hire black workers, right? And so, uh, you know, just to be fair to employers there, there's an organic issue of real 
racism in, you know, person to person racism in the society that we have to get over somehow. And so the argument, I think, can be defended in this way by saying, because this we are in the non-ideal situation of having racism, of course, the ideal would be to not have any. But since we have it, then allowing people to get onto the bottom rung of the economic ladder causes us to have more organic economic relationships that can then over time, you know, kind of uh, deal with racism. And I think people underestimate how much of that was going on. So I was really struck when I read the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, how many neighborhoods were fairly integrated. You have like a black street and a Polish street and an Irish street, you know, and so they may not live right next door, but, but workers were living near where they worked and they were fairly close together. And it actually took the imposition of the federal government with things like federal housing administration redlining, the highway system, the urban renewal programs, those things to actually artificially separate people who were already organically mixing. And so there really is a question of how do you organically get out of historic racism as opposed to something inorganic, which actually made it much, much worse and then you have to do something as drastic as the Anti-Discrimination Act because you've, you've painted yourself into a corner at that point, right? It's, you're, you know, Black people can't function economically in the South, um, you know, and so, and so uh, th- you know, then you end up taking away people's right of disassociation because they abuse it, right? They abuse it so viciously. There's an interesting uh, observation, I think, uh, made by my, my friend John Hasness, who's a professor at Georgetown Law, that the existence of a law prohibiting something uh, at least implies that people want to do it. This is not, I mean, not, not always true, but like it, it implies that you can, you can figure out what the real world is like by looking at the inverse of laws and Jim Crow laws, which mandated segregation implies at least that there were people who didn't want to segregate. Otherwise you wouldn't need such a law. Certainly, as you pointed out, Rachel, you had customers and employees, employees who were, who were racist and didn't want to work with people. But there were some people who were totally willing to live next to African-Americans who were totally willing to employ them. And so they needed a law to make sure that didn't happen. And I, I think as you pointed out, if there had been a freer market that, that did not mandate segregation, we would have seen more integration. Correct, Marcus? Yeah, one of the really fascinating um, things about the Tulsa, Oklahoma example is that before Tulsa became a state, um, before it became a state, or excuse me, before Oklahoma became a state, Tulsa was actually, and and Oklahoma in general, was pretty integrated. Um, It wasn't until the state, the state legislature actually comes together. One of the first things they do is pass Jim Crow segregation laws. And we see the advent of Greenwood as separate from the rest of Tulsa. And so Tulsa is, you know, it's kind of a great case study for a variety of reasons. But these people, I think one of the sources that we, we read said people are too busy getting rich uh, to worry too much about the color of other people's skin. I mean, I'm sure that's an exaggeration. I'm sure there were definitely, that doesn't mean those people out there weren't uh, racist uh, against uh, black Americans, et cetera. But I thought that was really um, telling that there was sort of integration. And even, even at the time of the burning in 1921, um, you have white people living on the black side of town and you have black or white neighbors trying to protect their black neighbors and getting beat up by the mob as it comes in. And so we do see elements of that. Uh, We also see businesses throughout the Reconstruction period fighting against uh, state uh, legislation that would basically force them, uh, right, to only serve white customers or only serve, well, only serve white customers, only serve black customers, et cetera. And there's been some really good work uh, on streetcars and other uh, sort of industries that tried to 
resist uh, the state governments imposing upon them segregation. Rachel, you mentioned uh, the bottom rung, which I think is an important concept uh, throughout your book uh, in many ways where in a society where due to slavery, due to enslavement of black Americans, they there were they were suffered from many, many educational deficiencies, you know, other types of deficiencies imposed upon them. And so the bottom rung is very important for people who are skill-wise on the bottom, at least right now, right, to get that like leg up. One of those bottom rungs, as you write about in the book, is minimum wage, or one of the things that can be used to take away the bottom rung is the minimum wage. So how is the minimum wage conceptualized by at least some of the proponents of the time who were who were saying we need a minimum wage? Yeah, I mean, this is really shocking stuff because it's tied to the eugenics movement. And the eugenics movement is not necessarily understood by both Americans as being a big part of our history, but it's actually a huge part of our history. It's something that's been, I almost feel like it's been covered up in some sense in academia. And that, that may be because it was so tied to the progressives, right, in the progressive era. But uh, it is really ugly. I, it's really shocking to read some of the things that people said. And a lot of it were in mainstream economics textbooks. And so you had presidents, presidents, cabinets, presidents of universities, you know, John Maynard Keynes. You had all sorts of uh, famous academics that were involved in eugenics. And in mainstream economics textbooks, they were saying things like, well, you know, we, we can't chloroform undesirables right now. So... Um, let's exclude them from employment, right? And then they can kind of fade away or they can be institutionalized. I mean, there's all these just bizarre things being said and it's exclusion of, of Blacks, immigrants, the disabled, and women. Um, and so you see the minimum wage as being a way of excluding from employment specifically for the goal of supporting white male heads of households because that's the kind of family, the kind of uh, genes, right, that we want to encourage. And so we want to discourage everybody else. And um, and so a lot of things are tied together here. You see that with the minimum wage. You see it in the union movement. You see it in immigration laws uh, that arise against the Chinese and other groups uh, where before we had very open borders. It's all tied together with this eugenics movement. Um, and so the actual disemployment effects of the minimum wage are seen as the advantage of imposing the minimum wage, where now people try to say, oh, maybe the disemployment effects aren't bad or something. It's like, that was literally the point of the first uh, minimum wage laws. It's, it's very disturbing. Yeah, I think one of the things that most of my students, when I teach them American history too, don't really grasp is how racist America was from about 1880 to all the way up until World War II. I think it's really World War II, you know, sort of double V, victory at home, uh, and victory abroad, victory of over racism and Nazism abroad, and victory over segregation, discrimination, racism at home, that breaks us out of that. But I mean, when Booker T. Washington it takes over the mantle of leader of the race, um, he's trying to fight against, right, this scientific racism, this eugenics, the belief by whites across the country that blacks are not only racially inferior, but also that blacks will eventually just die out because they're the inferior uh, quote unquote species. Um, it's really, really dark stuff. And it's hard to, to sort of in our modern minds to, to sort of capture how racist sort of 1880 to 1940 or so was um, in the United States and you might say globally. And I'll just follow up to m mention real fast that, you know, Milton Friedman calls calls the minimum wage the most anti-Negro policy he could think of. And, and the reason he does that is because increasing numbers of black unemployed teenagers 
in particular compared to to white teenagers being employed means that they're not getting that low level of experience, right? That first entry level job that's moving them on uh, up the ladder into employment. And so you get higher and higher levels of unemployment where in the 40s and 50s, black employment is higher than white employment because you have more, you have the same number of black men working and you have more black women. And so, so there was no distinction there where now we have very high levels of unemployment in the black community compared to the white. A general rule of mine when promoting classical liberal ideas is if you do assume that a bunch of people are racist, as Marcus pointed out, and we, we, we generally say, that especially that time in American world history, they were very racist, then you probably shouldn't empower racists to be better at racism via something like the minimum wage, taking away a bottom young, or another one, as you pointed out briefly, Rachel, labor unions, which are you know, thought of by many people as a very, very important worker-empowering organization. But what happens when the labor union is run by racists, as you could presume would happen from a random assortment of white people, say, 1905, right? You could presume that most of them are probably not going to be extremely progressive on race, and now you've empowered them with a race with a labor union. So what happened with labor unions? Well, I want to emphasize here that the causality actually goes both ways, right? So one of the ideas of the union uh, movement was a kind of zero-sum game approach to the economy. This was actually Frederick Douglass's problem with the union movement. He said it's not so much villainy as honest stupidity because they think that, you know, taking bread, you know, to get bread into my mouth, I've got to take it out of your mouth. And he's like, that's just wrong uh, because he understood market economics, you know. And so um, so if you have that zero sum view, then you think, OK, if I want my wages to go up, then I've got to exclude other workers. Well, what am I going to take advantage of? Well, whatever's around. Right. And so if people are racist, well, that's a great reason to exclude workers. Let's exclude them on the basis of race. And so it wasn't hard for those two things to come together, that sort of union mentality and being highly racist. And so the union movement ends up being really persistently racist. I mean, into the 60s, you hear James Baldwin complaining on TV interviews about the racism in unions. And so it really persists for a long time. And it also drives up wages in such a way that I think a lot of manufacturing ends up moving offshore or automated sooner than it otherwise would have. So that by the time black men are finally allowed into the unions, the manufacturing jobs are already leaving. And so it's a real... Um, you know, it's a real uh, uh, setback for, for black men who are trying to move from manual labor into more white collar or trades, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Another area in which um, sort of to piggyback on this point in which, you know, you don't want to empower sort of racist was one specific example was the Journeyman Barbers Association. And what they would do is they would advocate for licensing laws in, in the state legislatures, right? And one of and those licensing laws were explicitly aimed, the explicit aim of the Journeyman Barbers Association was to exclude black barbers who were willing to uh, cut hair on uh, on more hours to, you know, uh, to charge less, etc. And so we see a massive shift in the percentage of uh, barbers who are black uh, versus white um, by like the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, because the, the union is using the state legislature and they generally do it through the guise of um, sort of, you know, 
health and wellness, right? Um, we need more licensing hours, but they ultimately get in Arkansas, at least they get a law put into place. that's a thousand hours, uh, a thousand hours of training in order to be a barber. Um, and it just raises the fixed cost, um, uh, you know, to become a barber. And then the test, um, we've done some work on tests as well. Uh, it's not in this specific book, but uh, in the test, the outcomes of the test tend to, to ultimately empower white barbers over black barbers, uh, which raises some questions about uh, sort of the regulatory apparatus that was set up. So yeah, unions and also licensing uh, restrictions, which we're still grappling with today. Yeah, that's one of the, if you are a racist who wants to protect your job and not employ races that you don't like, but the job is diffuse and not in like a factory, uh, you know, like barbers are not usually, you know, put together, then licensing is another option, right? For a diffuse employment situation versus unionization when they're all in the same factory. Again, empowering racists is generally a bad idea. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the book, because it was very illuminating to me, uh, is about the black church. Now, it's important when we talk about being classical liberals that we're not just talking about the ability to buy and sell and contract and have property, just not the economic reality of it and the, and then the government. But there's a thing that we call civil society that's as important, if not more important, to the flourishing of human beings. And one of those civil society institutions is the church, just generally church, communities, neighborhoods, things like that. The black church is a very important institution. And to this day, black Americans are, I think, the most religious segment of American population. I think the number in the book is 83% or 80 or 83% profess deep belief on some level in Christianity. So what what is the role of the black church uh, in terms of coming out of enslavement and then and helping to build uh, black communities stronger? Yeah, this was something that I sort of realized as I was writing the book, that it's just ridiculous to try and write a book about Black American history without talking about the Black church. Because as Lincoln and Mamiya put it in their sort of classic work on the Black church, uh, they, they call it the cultural womb of Black America. And I think there's a couple of really important elements here. The first one is how empowering the message was for enslaved people. So to hear in Genesis 1 that you are made in the image of God, just like every other human being on the planet, that's a big deal. And the, the revivalists actually describe the way that, that Black converts are filled with joy. So where a lot of white converts would be sort of feeling very guilty about their sin when they would convert, the Black converts are like jumping and dancing because they're thinking, oh, I have a relationship with the king of the universe. Like, this is amazing, right? And so um, there was a, a real source of self-esteem. And then the story of the, uh, of the Hebrews being freed from the Egyptians by God through Moses was a huge... Um, touchstone for the black church who saw it as basically a promise that that's what God was going to do for them and that God cared about freedom and, and did not want them to be slaves. And so um, it, it, it motivated, I think, enslaved people to take hold of their freedom when so the Civil War did finally occur. I don't know how much, I mean, we could argue, I guess, as historians, how much white Northern soldiers were really fighting for the freedom of black slaves in the South. I, I don't know. They were fighting for the union, you know, whatever. But the point is, is that enslaved people in the South were going to take a hold of it. They sure were. And they were going to do it because they were already praying and singing and thinking and, and preaching about freedom, both spiritual and physical uh, uh, because of their faith. And then after emancipation, you see how 
the church as the one place where black people are really in charge and they have their own private arena and their leadership is respected, that then becomes like the networking center and serves so many more purposes than we generally associate with church. It becomes, you know, where you do your art shows, where you have your business networks, where you, you know, where you create new music, where you, um, you know, where Frederick Douglass Prince's newspaper, right? In the, in the basement of, of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church that he's a part of. And so, so much community work is going on in the church and it becomes the place where people can come together and create the fraternal societies and the literary, you know, the literacy efforts and so much of, of the amazing uh, accomplishments of the black community uh, uh, come out of that, that uh, nexus. Yeah, civil society is absolutely key. And one of the things we really try to emphasize in chapter six about the civil rights movement, I mean, just think of how many of the key leaders came out of the black church. Those who didn't come out of the black church were black businessmen, black businesswomen, right? Um, who had, you know, public, had created publications, etc. And then, of course, um, we talk about the, the really important work of the fraternal societies, right, to sort of uh, civically educate um, black Americans. And so I think those three things are extraordinarily important. All three of them, I think we can discuss as sort of existing in some realm of civil society. Um, you have sort of the business, the businessmen and women, you have uh, fraternal societies and you have the church and all those things provide a foundation upon which uh, the civil rights movement can actually be successful. I think in the book, we talk about how in 1905, from 1896 to 1905, there were lots of boycotts of streetcars to try and bring about uh, desegregation, and they ultimately failed. Um, and one of the things I always ask my students is, why did they fail in, in 1905, but they succeeded in 1955? It's because of 50 years of extraordinarily difficult work from the grassroots up, right? Booker T. Washington's sort of philosophy of put down your bucket, so to speak, uh, be where you are, you know, build, uh, be entrepreneurial, create things, educate uh, you know, organize, all of those things came together then in 1955 to enable a successful boycott um, in Montgomery. So civil society is absolutely key, both to the civil rights movement and key to our book. Yeah, and we, and we also just should never underestimate the kind of ethical sophistication of the civil rights movement, nonviolent political action that comes out of their faith, you know, and, and, just incredibly disciplined and well-organized. And I think of the Montgomery bus boycott and people driving each other to work for 381 days or whatever it took. It's absolutely incredible. You would have to have a really thick community to accomplish that kind of thing. And then for, and then for black Americans to turn around at the same time and actually care about the white soul and the way that the white soul was being affected by racism and wanting to redeem not just themselves, but America as a whole um, from this terrible history. I mean, it's just a really impressive thing, which makes it all the more depressing that you hear people say things like, you know, with Black Lives Matter, like, this isn't your grandma's civil rights movement or something. It's so disrespectful. It's like you have no idea the kind of planning and discipline and spiritual advancement that you have to have to do what was done. I wish you, there was more of that today rather than less. Of course, the civil rights movement culminates with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which is still controversial amongst some libertarians today uh, because of this idea that you have the right to discriminate. Uh, myself, uh, I, since the existence of Jim Crow and forced segregation was itself a violation of that of those principles, and it created an underclass for that that we let happen 
for 80 plus years, you know, it might take extraordinary things to fix it. Um, but of course, there's interesting op- opposition to the Civil Rights Act. And this is where the conservatives have to deal with some of their issues in the past, especially the church movement and like that they were opposing something where, as you point out in your book, if you unbundle this and you are not tribal in this, you should be able to recognize both the, you know, legitimate grievances and the ability of the marketplace to help. So w- with the Civil Rights Act, I mean, is that that's not the, the end of the story, of course, but it's it's a major it's a major signpost in the story. Yeah, I think that um so I'll just quickly say that I think that because the civil rights movement sort of ends with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, I think modern sort of movements uh for liberation, modern movements for rights tend to look to government to solve the issues and the problems. And one of the things that we really try to do in here is to say like that does that was the end goal regardless of where you stand on sort of 6465 um i i i think i think it's probably was the right response uh to what was existing at the time uh, i understand sort of the purest complaints about you know the, the right to discriminate etc but i think given the historical context i i'm not sure um what the alternative really would have been at that time uh, perhaps to uh, just outlaw all Jim Crow laws, right? And enable like, yeah, that would have been an interesting experiment. I think something like that is what Barry Goldwater would have liked to have ideally seen. Um, that would have been probably more messy, um, but, you know, we would have, you know, it would have been a lot messier probably. Although we did, it's important to know, like we did have another 15 years of discrimination or, you know, extended discrimination, but also segregation in the form of schools, etc. Um, but I think one of the things that we really want to get across to, um, you know, if you're an activist today is that, this culminated right with government intervention, but it took a lot of sort of grassroots. It took a lot of civil society. It took a lot of hard work. It took a lot of organizing. It took a lot of people who had been engaged in the marketplace to provide the money, the funds, etc., um, in order to lead to uh, the liberation. And so, just asking government to intervene and coming up with sort of legislative solutions probably isn't going to um, necessarily uh, get you where you want to be. I'll just add, I, I I understand the, yeah, sort of the purest critique. I think they're actually making one major mistake, which is that, and, and I was surprised to learn this when I, when I did kind of a deep dive on the legal conversation, which is that in common law, the idea of public accommodation is actually completely normal. So, so our understanding of property rights can't just be this pure sort of enlightenment rationalist idea of individual property rights. Property rights are fuzzy around the edges. You have to figure all sorts of things out, nuisance law and easements and right. You know, the idea is that you want to have what will make it easiest for people to have exchange for mutual advantage. That's, that's what you need out of your property rights. And so historically people did have to accommodate the public if they were doing a public shop. And so it would actually be a departure from our historical property rights to not have that. So I I thought that was a really interesting thing uh, to learn. But the other thing is just to emphasize that, you know, the founders said this would happen. They said freedom is for a virtuous people. Vicious people can't be free. They, they, their freedoms will just go away. They just will. They weren't even necessarily saying they should. They just will. And I think that's what happened. If you, if you abuse your freedom as viciously as people did, such that some people were not able to uh, you know, go about their lives and, and flourish, then you will lose that freedom. And I think that's what happened. Does it cause all sorts of confusion when we get into anti-discrimination law now? Yeah, that's the cost of abusing your freedom right? That's the cost of being morally vicious. And so I think those libertarians who want to talk about rights, but never want to talk about maybe 
community or, you know, they, they, they don't want to talk as much about, um, you know, how we have to organize ourselves voluntarily. I think this is a lesson in a way to say you better be working on that and not just on legal rights because you need virtuous voluntary organization or you will lose those rights. Keeping in the 60s, uh, of course, there's so much in the book, uh, which I highly, highly recommend to listeners, but uh, we have uh, something that has been criticized heavily by conservatives and libertarians, which is welfare, the great society, uh, which you discussed in the book. Um, How should we approach that as classical liberals, uh, the costs and benefits of welfare, especially to black Americans? Yeah, so we essentially agree with the conservative critique of the welfare state. Um, the way that it's arranged is extremely destructive. Actually, since I've written the book, I've learned more about just how bad it is. It's The incentives are uh, not just a welfare cliff, but a kind of incentive desert um, because the marginal tax rate is so high for people who are are welfare dependent. And so there's just no incentive to go to work. It would be economically irrational. Um, But of course, work is a huge part of of, uh, what it is to have a meaningful life, you know, to feel that you're contributing, uh, to have structure to your days and things like that. And so helping people just to survive till next week is not doing right by them. It's not increasing their flourishing if, if it's not transformative, if it's not something that's transformative. And so we agree with that critique. We do nuance it to some extent by pointing out that the the progressive story, which tends to emphasize unemployment, is also true, right? That you do have high levels of black male unemployment in particular, um, but that the progressives don't often remember to blame the unions for that, which they need to do. And then, of course, there was a kind of technical part of this, which is the contraception shock. That that really changes male, female, you know, sexual politics. It affects a family structure. And when you affect family structure, you know, that that's a very fundamental thing for, for people in terms of uh, other other kinds of flourishing like employment. And so um, so we want to agree with conservatives while telling them to complicate their story a little bit. And then we also want to challenge them and say, you know what, you're right that these kinds of programs cause dysfunction. But that means that welfare always causes dysfunction, including corporate welfare, uh, right? And so you should, you, if you go hard about social welfare, you better go hard about corporate welfare, uh, welfare for the rich, which is having dysfunctional effects on markets, right? And, and creating, you know, choosing winners and losers uh, in such a way that uh, causes malinvestment. And so we want them to be even-handed. And we also want them to put their money where their mouth is. So if if you're really worried about family breakdown and fatherlessness, for instance, I certainly hope that you are mentoring a father or a kid who doesn't have a dad or taking a kid to prison to visit his dad so that he can maintain his relationship. Um, I think sometimes conservatives temperamentally are really good at the analysis, but not necessarily as good at the action. And yet, especially for those who are professing faith, they really need to follow through on those principles in their personal lives. I'd also say that one of the things that I think libertarians sometimes miss about the Great Society, um, I mean, is the fact that Lyndon ba- Lyndon Bain Johnson and the administration, um, this was a political bill that they threw together and they didn't really know exactly what where the money was going to go, et cetera. And they actually did try to sort of, in a sense, they probably weren't reading Hayek, but they did try to basically send the money to localities and to the states and to have sort of more knowledge, if you will, you know, you send them the money and let the people who are knowledgeable, the associations, the groups, et cetera, deal with the problem. The problem was with the Great Society, like 
with the sort of um, highway system is that when you give money to central to local central planners um, who, like we said before, are, are racist or who want to run the highway through the black neighborhood, you're going to get really, really devastating results. And so I think even um, I've seen some recent progressive historians sort of coming in and, and critiquing the Great Society uh, on this sort of level, right, uh, as well, and trying to critique uh, sort of the conservative narrative about it. It wasn't completely centralized, right, um, the ways in which they designed it, um, but nonetheless had the same types of, you know, sort of results that uh, when you give this money to people who have sort of a vested interest to try and sort of remake their city, um, it's no surprise when uh, they create ghettos, uh, literally, for black Americans. I'm reminded of a quote from Richard Epstein, uh, who once said to me, his rule on welfare and redistribution is uh, redistribution last. So after you have taken the foot of the government off of the employment prospects, the education prospects, and all these other things that are not giving people the ability to get on that bottom rung and, and make life for themselves, if you've done all that and then you still need to cut people some checks so you can, they can get by, then then it would be a more sensible conversation than not first looking at the structural and institutional problems and legal problems that are keeping people down. Now, Marcus, you pointed out the highway, which I'm very glad that you put that in the book, uh, because we also have to look at the nature of our cities and the segregation of those cities, as you pointed out, was not always, definitely not natural, so to speak. It wasn't in Tulsa before the race riots. It was not the natural condition, but there were many interested players and racists who made sure that African-Americans didn't get housing loans from the federal government, redlining and all those kind of things. Then, of course, moving that forward and looking at what our cities look like and where the highways go, that that itself is a story of property rights and, and a real kind of oppression of basic classical liberal ideas. Yeah, that's right. So we looked at a book called Folklore of the Free Freeway by Eric Abela, and he actually goes back and looks at you know municipal meetings where the town leaders, just as Marcus was explaining are receiving, you know, millions upon millions of dollars in funding. This is the biggest spending outside of war that the federal government has ever done in order to build the highway system. And of course, right, they're going to bring their own values to how this is done. And there were cases, really heartbreaking cases, where the highway could have just as easily been placed in, a, in an industrial area that would not have disturbed anyone, but they were it was chosen uh, to go through the Black economic centers to eminent domain, their homes and businesses, uh, really blow apart the community and um, throw them to the four winds, right? Where how are people going to reconstitute all of the civil society that they had built? Um, so destructive. And then separate Black people from white people or out West white people from Latino people um, in a way that, you know, with a huge wall of concrete, right? In a way that's going to break down all kinds of possibilities for interaction. And it really was the child of the eugenics movement. The idea, this sort of progressive social engineering concept that racial groups will do better if they don't live together. We are smart and we know this, right? Because we're full of hubris. And so we're going to impose that from above. And it was an absolute disaster. And we're still paying for it to this day. Yeah, I was really, really appalled as we got into the research for these chapters on, you know, on sort of the Great Society, the highways and whatnot, about the just clear injustices uh, that were committed in the past and clear injustices that conservatives seemingly don't acknowledge, even though in this case, right, they're oftentimes uh, perpetuated by progressives uh, who are trying to sort of socially engineer 
Um, but like the highway system, you know, it happened in Montgomery. It happened in St. Louis, I believe. It happened in Memphis. Uh, we think about Oakland. Oakland was actually – was. Oakland's not in the South, guys, right? Like the, the the segregation that exists in places like California or Detroit or Milwaukee, those are a product of government directly coming in, providing the resources, and then local sort of bureaucrats and elected officials drawing, you know, running those highways directly, as Rachel said, uh, through black uh, prosperous, oftentimes black neighborhoods, destroying civil society, destroying families, destroying opportunities. Um, this is just um, a clear injustice, right? And uh, Richard Rothstein talks about this at great length in The Color of Law. Of course, he draws the conclusion that, um, you know, out of this, we need more government uh, to to somehow solve this problem, which you just sort of hit yourself in the head. Yeah, and they, and they, follow, they follow this up immediately with uh, urban renewal, you know, which is a kind of slum clearance, but James Baldwin called it Negro removal. Um, right. Because what looks like a slum to you could be an upwardly mobile working class neighborhood to somebody else. And so it was like it was like two hits right in a row on top of FHA redlining, which has been going on for 40 years already. So it was just so many destructive things happening. And then we're surprised that we're stuck with, um, you know, really poor, struggling inner city neighborhoods. It's like, no, we created these neighborhoods. Yeah, Richard came on a couple of years ago. We'll, we'll put a link to that uh, on The Color of Law, which is a very, very good book. But I, I sympathize in being like, well, I'm not sure that the proposed government programs would be run any better than the uh, than the ones that were in the past that created this situation. Now, of course, on top of the segregation of the cities and the destruction of black neighborhoods, we graft a public school system that is geolocked uh, in an interesting way, which creates massive, massive problems in inner city schools. So th- that, does that need to be part of the story too, the nature of, of public education and, and how that is being not, let's just say not run well in the inner city, that we need to focus on that too, if we're going to appreciate the lessons of People like Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass that education is that bottom rung that has always helped people, African-American or whatever race you are, uh, achieve better things in life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we basically segregated America. The government basically segregated America. And then we forced black children to go to school and to go to school in schools that are drawing property taxes from areas that don't have a great amount of tax base. And then we wonder why there are disparities, racial disparities in educational outcomes. The clear answer is to allow school choice, to provide vouchers to parents, to allow black and Latina and working class families all across America the same opportunity that middle class and upper class um you know, uh, Americans have now, which is to take that money and to send their kids right to the schools of their choice. And and as a result of that, right, uh, the result of giving vouchers to folks, uh, allowing more choice, what would happen is we see a whole slew of sort of educational entrepreneurs come in to fill the demand to provide better education, whether it be technical or whether it be more sort of formal like we have now. Um, Who knows what the model will be? That's the beautiful thing. And perhaps for some people, the scary thing about the marketplace is that we don't know how good it could be. But what we do know right now is that a large number uh, of of individuals, of families, right? Not just not just black families, to be clear, are trapped in really, really poorly performing schools that have a culture um, that is is very, very destructive to the development of those children. And Rachel can talk a little bit more about some of the other costs beyond just sort of educational, because sometimes people say, well, charter schools don't perform all that much better uh, than the um, 
public schools do. But as Rachel likes to point out, that's not the only metric for whether or not school choice vouchers, charters uh, are actually successful. Yeah, one of the ways in which charter schools have been very consistently performing is uh, the much, much lower rates of going into the criminal justice system, uh, even of things like teen pregnancy, um, things that mean a lot to parents, right? A mental and physical well-being for their kids. It might take another generation to bring the academics up even more. Some charters are very impressive, but others are, you know, sort of comparable, but they're much better on these other measures. And I think it's too easy from you know, maybe a middle or upper class perspective to just look at the test numbers and not realize how much these other measures matter uh, to parents. I do want to tweak slightly what Marcus said, because it's true that you you are drawing on an area with uh, lower property taxes, but it's also true that a lot of times you get a bunch of funding from the state or from the federal government to make up for it. And so sometimes in inner city schools, you're actually spending more, quite a bit more. That's true in St. Louis. In Washington, D.C., I think it's $27,000 per pupil per year, which is the most in the, in the nation. Oh, and if, and if you guys haven't watched the documentary, Miss Virginia, you've got to see it, um, where she finds the numbers in the trash can. She finds the chart, and it's like $30,000 a student. She's like, what? I'm busting my butt to get my son to private school. I can't even afford it. And you're spending $30,000 per student. You know, you can go to you can go to a Catholic school sometimes for 8,000 bucks, you know, um, or be on scholarship or whatever. So, um, so I think the issue is not so much that there's not enough money, but the fact that there's no competition, as Marcus said, means that the money is not well spent. And so we see how, how you have ballooning administration, but we also see how the model is one size fits all because there's no competition. And the fact is, is that if you're growing up in a fairly chaotic neighborhood, you know, where you're coming home to police tape, you know, across, across your neighbor's house or something, that's really traumatic. You're dealing with a ton of obstacles that your Joe Schmo suburban teenager is not dealing with. And what that means is that you have to be even more creative in the way you bring education to those students. They may need more structure, right? They may need more food. They may need more, you know, there may be all sorts of things that you have to do differently, but you're not really allowed because you have such a one size fits all approach um, through the public public school system. So I want to add, I think that not only could educational choice be amazing for students, I think it could actually be amazing for teachers, uh, I think we could see teachers really letting their creativity go with all kinds of learning pods and different groups and making more money uh, than they make now, but they would have to have a much more entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, it really is. It really is shocking how much we spend and how, how much we've increased spending over the course of the last 40 years or so. And I think the Cato Institute has a wonderful graph, uh, a wonderful write up that shows the spending levels have gone up astronomically, while uh, sort of outcomes have remained completely stagnant over the course of the last 40 years, which tells you there's a structural problem, there's a lack of competition, um, um, etc. And so, yeah, I mean, school choice, I think the school choice moment is here. Um, I'm not really sure why I I kind of I'm to be cynical. I think Democrats are captured by the teachers unions, which is why they generally oppose uh, school choice. But I I think that most progressives would agree that we should empower minority families to send their kids to whatever schools that they choose. And if we have to sort of compromise in a sense and provide some sort of public accommodation to get those kids where they need to go, um, you know, where their parents want to send them. Then I don't know if libertarians would be opposed to that small cost in order to allow kids to break out of, you know, I'm talking, Rachel, of course, if, you know, if you have parents who can't get kids to places and stuff. Uh, but I mean, you know, there's ways that we can work with the left on this, but this seems like something that 
should be a clear, you know, if we want to call it, I call it just a, a justice issue. They can call it social justice if they want. This is just a justice issue, and I don't understand why there's not um, more bipartisan support for school choice across the country. Uh, hopefully we'll get there. It looks like uh, we're moving in that direction. 60 to 70 percent of black and Latino families are pro school choice. Here, here. Well, there's so much in the book. I again, I highly recommended it uh, we, before we started recording. I said, you know, write the book that you want to read. Uh, so many, so many papers and things that maybe are harder to get, like Bob Higgs's work, is you know put put in there. Um, so, if you want to read about the drug war and gun laws and, and everything else, it's it's in there too. So, I, but I do think for the end, we need to we do need to ask about reparations. Because what we've been talking about is just a lot of stuff that we, I'm putting that in scare quotes, some sort of sense of we, the United States uh, governments around the country, did to black Americans. So how do we feel about the case for reparations uh, in light of all these these facts in your book? Yeah, I think Rachel and I are in agreement that where we can clearly see past injustice, um, like in the case of Japanese internment, we can clearly tie it to a certain group of people who have been wronged that we should address that as a country, as a nation, as a community. Um, I will say that Rachel and I don't expect that reparations, you know, sort of the sort of cash payment model to be very effective. Um, We don't think that's going to lead to black betterment. We talk about transitional justice in the book. We talk about um, sort of neighborhood stabilization in the book. We talk about other things that we think will be much more beneficial than reparations to bringing about uh, sort of prospering, uh, a sort of prosperity, et cetera. Um, but we do agree that when there's been system, systemic injustice, um, like we've seen here, right, we should probably go ahead and address that past injustice so we acknowledge it as a community and as a society. Um, because you can't really heal from something without recognizing uh, that that's something existed in the past. And Rachel and I like to sort of, my advisor in graduate school's name is David Beto. He's a great historian. Um, and David and I were talking one day and he goes, well, you know, reparations, maybe we should just, all that federal land out west, maybe we should just sell it all. And then we could, you know, take reparations out of that. And then no taxpayer today, right, is having to pay for something for, that they themselves didn't participate in, right? Because that's what the critique I always get from conservatives. Well, I didn't do this, so why should I have to pay taxes, you know, in order to to, to provide reparations? Well, it's like, well, let's, let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's take all that land out west or a large amount of land out west and let's put it into private hands. We'll be way more, way more uh, productive um, and we can give the proceeds or we can distribute the proceeds uh, through uh, various systems. I think Rachel has some specific ideas on those. Well, and yeah, let me just say I'm in the middle of a really good conversation with Robert E. Wright, whose work we used way back in chapter two on the costs of, of slavery, the economic costs of slavery. But um, he's written another book called Financial Exclusion, where, um, you know, he's he and I are talking right now. I'm actually working on an article uh, where we might think about what would genuinely uh, build wealth, right? Because the big complaint is still the wealth gap. And so um, in what way could we channel this money in order to build wealth? And in the book, I, I wasn't really sure yet. Some kind of maybe way to provide capital for business people or something like that. But we're now playing with, you know, talking about things like, um, you know, what can you do to build things like black banking or Native American banking or rural banking for poor whites, right? Um, how can you reduce regulatory barriers that make it impossible to give out small loans because you've got so much processing costs because of Dodd-Frank that you can't even give out a small mortgage or a small business loan. It's not worth your time. So what can we do to fund 
efforts like that or even just lower the barriers to efforts like that so that we're actually building wealth with that money. Um, and then one of the points that I always make because I want to address conservative critiques is that we're not talking about slavery here, okay? Reparations generally are limited to a human lifetime because otherwise we, we could all owe each other reparations if we go far enough back in history, right? But if you look at a human lifetime, listen, we all know Jim Crow survivors. We know people who impose Jim Crow on others. Jim Crow, I mean, just the other day on Twitter, somebody was pointing out that, that belief in interracial marriage didn't pass the majority population mark until 1997. I mean, that's how close we are uh, to, to some of this terrible oppression of even things like being able to marry who you wanted to marry. So um, so we're looking at the, the sins of Jim Crow and even some of the ones that came after Jim Crow, like the highways and the and the urban renewal that were still at work and really causing possibly even more damage, you know, in terms of being community wide. And so what can we do to just pour into entrepreneurs who, who are then empowering their whole community, they're hiring people, they're building wealth for others uh, and so forth. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.